Tonight's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by 4hims.com, The Great Courses Plus, and our contributors at Patreon. Nearly 81 years prior to the release of tonight's episode, Amelia Earhart and her navigator, Fred Noonan, set off for one of the last legs of their around-the-world flight, which would have made her the first woman to circumnavigate the globe by plane. For Amelia, finishing it would be a crowning achievement on her already storied career as a pioneering aviatrix. Unfortunately, after taking off from a short dirt runway in Papua New Guinea on July 2, 1937, Earhart and Noonan would never officially be seen again. We add officially as a qualifier in this case because, as you can imagine, the search for answers to what happened to Earhart and Noonan has uncovered a multitude of plausible hypotheses, depending on how you evaluate the evidence left behind. One of them even has a widely debated photograph. But that's not what tonight's show is about. Tonight's show is about the plane. Amelia's custom-built Lockheed Electra 10E, assembled just miles from our studio, Blanket Fortiana. There are plenty of stories of sightings of her Electra after she and Noonan vanished. Multiple eyewitnesses report it being towed by a barge behind the Japanese oceanographic survey ship, the Koshu, which reportedly recovered not only the Electra, but the pilot and navigator, transporting them to the island of Saipan, where they were held captive in secret until their deaths. Several members of the U.S. military claim to have seen the Electra there under guard in a warehouse and even flown over Saipan at one point before ultimately being destroyed on the airfield and buried there. A few Saipanese civilians said they saw the plane on the island as well, and they also saw two people who matched Earhart and Noonan's descriptions. We found all of this evidence so compelling when we researched our own multi-part series on her that we personally felt it was the most plausible of the more prominent hypotheses out there, not only due to its technical viability, but to the over 200 accounts from eyewitnesses as well. There are, of course, other hypotheses about what happened to Earhart and Noonan, and all of them have well-researched ideas behind them, in many cases with decades of work and even millions of dollars being spent. But if her flight was truly what it was represented to be, and not a cover for some sort of spy mission or other outlying theory, then only one of the proposed hypotheses can be right. Which brings us to tonight's show. As we said, it's been over 80 years since Amelia went missing, and most of the primary theories behind her disappearance have been around for decades. Does that mean that the solution, whenever it does come, must come from one of them? What happens when you step back and take a different look entirely at the mystery of Amelia Earhart's disappearance. Bill Snavely did that, and modest as he is, is currently the only man in the decades-long search for Amelia that has actually found a complete airplane. This plane could change Mr. Snavely's investigation from a hypothesis to a theory that would open up an entirely new angle on what happened to Earhart and Noonan after they took off from New Guinea so long ago. And tonight, thanks to our partnership with Chris Williamson and the folks at the Chasing Earhart Project, Bill Snavely is on Astonishing Legends. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. It's my opinion that if the plane was in the area already searched, it would have been found by now. 
William Pennington Snavely Jr. from his book Tracking Amelia Earhart, Her Flight Path to the End. Join us tonight for a special interview with the only man in the history of the search for Amelia Earhart who has found a complete plane that may match hers. And we're back. Hey, folks. Man, are we excited about tonight's show. Thanks so much for tuning in for this one. A quick note before we get started. We just want to say thanks so much to everyone who came out to see us in Ohio at the Kent Paranormal Weekend. That was truly an astonishing trip, and we had a blast. No, you know what? I really didn't know what to expect. I was excited and uh, maybe apprehensive a little because we actually had to give a presentation, but it was a tremendous amount of fun, and everybody was so great. We had a blast. Yeah, and we finally got to meet Jim Harold. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, I've been a fan since maybe 2008. When I first discovered it, I think I said uh, maybe on a little clip for his show, Campfire, is that that's what was weird for us. I originally did some research to see what was out there and there weren't that many podcasts like maybe five or six and Jim had two of them yeah and uh, and they're both really entertaining if you yeah. just love stories so anyway that was very odd to flash forward years later and we actually get to meet him and hang out with him and really he's the true podfather of paranormal podcasting and then on top of that he had us on his show so we were on yeah. his most uh, as of the the release of this show his most recent episode of campfire so check that out i think it was episode 350 i think is it yeah okay um, yeah. so go take a look at that you can get uh, links to it on our twitter feed and on our facebook page and in our facebook group speaking of the facebook group yeah. it was so great to meet the people from the group who came to the weekend. Absolutely. Uh, we really had a blast. We just want to give a shout out to uh, Nancy and, of course, Megan, who was the one who videoed our presentation yep, for yep. a live stream on Facebook. Thank you so much, Megan. And on top of that, we met uh, Paul and Don. And Paul and Don both run the book club on the Facebook group, which is a lot of fun. All three of them, I think, started it. That's how they knew each other. So yes. when they got to the theater the, where the Paranormal Weekend was happening, they instantly grouped together and became their, their own three musketeers. Yeah. And, and we had a lot of fun just chatting with them and hanging out a little bit. And, and uh, that's where a lot of the joy comes from, is actually meeting some listeners and meeting really cool, smart, funny people who have the same interests as you. Well, yeah, it was truly great. And I, I want to give uh, a shout out, especially to our good friend Jelly Sock, who is one of our <laughs> primary interactive followers on Twitter. It was a great pleasure to finally meet you in person. Absolutely. Um, so anyway, thanks to everybody who came out for that. All the people that we met, we did get meet some pretty amazing people, and we're going to be having them on for future shows, for yeah. interviews. Actually, that's another really good point because we finally got to meet in person some real paranormal investigators who are well known in this field and have actually gone out and done a lot of research, written books, uh, which are all great. And uh, that doesn't really happen to us. We might talk to somebody on the phone, but we don't get to like hang out with them. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And on top of that, we went on a ghost hunt. And this we did. And 101-year-old theater where the event was held, which is apparently pretty haunted. And I'm going to have to agree with that. I got to be honest, folks. And for you <laughs> listeners, especially the more skeptical ones, yeah. I was incredulous about it. I mean, I knew it was going to be fun. I don't go in with my arms crossed, you know. I was just like, I wanted something to happen, but I was like, "Eh, I don't know anything's going to happen. It's a spooky old building. Right. We were objective. We were, at that point, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time on the presentation. Uh, We were already sleep deprived. Yeah, we had about three hours of sleep the day before. (laughs) A little loopy. Yeah. But we were open to stuff. We were kind of just taking it like, let's see what happens to us. You know, don't have a mental block about it. Just be open. Yes. But don't try and force anything either. I think it probably helped 
that we were exhausted because you know what? Some pretty amazing stuff happened. So amazing that we're actually going to make that part of our experience into next week's episode. Right. So we come back next week. You want to hear a little bit more about our first ghost hunt, or mine anyway. Have you been on one before, Forrest? Officially? Uh, no, I have been in places that were reportedly haunted. Not to that degree, though. Yeah, but that's that, not that, a ghost hunt. You, this well, was, that's so an what accidental I'm ghost hunt. We yeah. went, for both of us, we it went, was our first official ghost hunt. Here's what I'll say. We went actively looking for ghosts with a bunch of other people who were tremendous fun, and we had uh, tools of the trade. Yes, we did. Uh, and we've got yeah. more of them, and we're going to be talking about that, too, next week. So come back next week. I had a personal experience that I can't wait to tell you guys about. I got to say, folks, he looked white as a ghost. <laughs> he, he was. He looked shocked. Anyway, tonight's show is about the possible discovery of Amelia Earhart's plane. You got to pay close attention. It's a fascinating tale. And when the story is done, if you're interested in sponsoring Mr. Snavely's expedition to determine what lies beneath the waves in Buka, or you know someone who might be, please email us at astonishingcontact at gmail.com. And be sure and write BUKA, B-U-K-A, sponsorship in all caps in the subject line so we can be sure that it doesn't slip through the cracks. We have a lot of emails coming in there. We always get to them, but sometimes it takes a while. This is something that we we don't want to miss. So No, and, and we want to be able to find them and you know do a filter search. Yes, so exactly. It'll we, be easy to find, yeah. Also, if you want to read Mr. Snavely's book detailing this hypothesis that we're about to discuss, go to specialbooks.com and look for Tracking Amelia Earhart. You can get hard copies and downloadable copies there. Okay, Scott, well, why don't you set this up before we drop into Bill's interview? I just want to frame this story a little bit so you can follow along with what Bill will be talking about tonight. In 1937, a young boy was on the beach at Buka Island early in the morning during a thunderstorm when he personally saw a flaming aircraft come out of the clouds crashing on a quay about 100 yards offshore. After it landed, he actually saw two people trying to operate the radio. Although no one believed him at the time, Decades later, that young boy was proven to be telling the truth when a man named Tiolo was free diving for sea cucumbers in 1996 at the remarkable depth of 100 feet, and he saw this aircraft resting on the bottom of the sea. On the plus side, the original boy was still alive back then, although now he was an old man, and he lived to see his story validated by Tiolo. About 10 years later, in 2005, after Tiolo's dive discovering that mysterious plane, Bill Snavely flew to the area on a new search for Earhart. He had decided to start a new search for her from her takeoff point rather than where everyone thought she had wound up. Along the way, he met some gentlemen during his travels who asked him why he was in the region, and when he told them that he was looking for Amelia Earhart's plane, one of these men the head of the Department of Corrections for Buka, Dominic Chara, told him he knew where a plane was, but he wasn't sure of its origins. Dominic asked Bill what the missing plane looked like, and Bill gave him a description. This was likely the first time anyone in history had connected this particular crashed aircraft with Amelia Earhart. Dominic said, give me three weeks to confirm these characteristics, and he would get back to Bill. When he did, he confirmed that this plane was, in fact, a twin-engine, twin-tailed aircraft, and the final chapter of the saga that ensues has yet to be written. With the help of the local chiefs, as well as many other citizens of Buka, 
Years of research and work have led Bill to the conclusion that this plane must be considered as a possible candidate for Earhart's missing Electra 10E. Let's go to the interview. I'd like to welcome both guests that we have on the phone tonight to our show. We're super excited to have Bill Snavely Jr. on the show, as well as returning guest, podcaster, and documentarian, Chris Williamson of Chasing Earhart, without whom we would not have been able to reach Bill. So thank you. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Scott Forrest and Chris. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having me back on, guys. It's always a pleasure. I got to tell you, I'm very excited. One of the first things I want to do is mention Bill's book, Tracking Amelia Earhart, Her Flight Path to the End by William Pennington Snavely Jr., This book was published by the Paragon Agency in 2017, which is Douglas Westfall's company. I just want to read this quick little excerpt. These are paraphrased excerpts from Mr. Westfall's foreword in the book. I have published six other books on Earhart, all historic in nature, and I've always wanted to publish a third author with yet one more theory. I have known a dozen or more Earhart researchers and authors, as well as two women who have flown the world flight in her track. Now I have someone who has what no one else has ever brought to the table on Earhart. William P. Snavely Jr. has a different theory with a highly plausible outcome and for the first time, a plane. So when I first heard about this, it was back when you were on Chris's show on the Chasing Earhart podcast. That was what's like your fifth show, wasn't it, Chris? Yeah, that was episode five, you're right. Yeah, back in uh, August 2017. Right. How did you guys get hooked up? How did you find each other? I caught up with Chris through Doug. Doug had been uh, kind enough to do some publishing, and he'd heard about Chris and thought Chris was really on to some important things with the uh, podcast and uh, asked if it didn't make sense for the two of us to get in touch with each other. And I said, absolutely. That's great. And through him, I presume you probably have met some other additional researchers? Uh, I've talked with Paul Rafford when he was still around. I talked with uh, Alan Caldwell, spoken briefly with uh, Rick and with Jordan. I think that's probably been about the extent of it. Okay. We have so many questions for you. I'm I'm pretty giddy about what you found. <laughs> so even though it doesn't jibe so well with the Japanese capture hypotheses, which Forrest and I have, we put some well, flags we, up we on. we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but here's the thing. That what I love about it is that it can stand alone on its uh, by itself as being very credible and, and a really solid theory and hypothesis. But there could be a lot more to it. And so when we were talking, I think, with Chris uh, as guests on his show, that's one of the fun things about it is that it could be the whole picture or just another element of it. Or a piece of the picture. Yeah. 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 You know, through Chris and Chasing Earhart, one thing we've learned to embrace is the idea of multiple hypotheses working together and maybe having a, a modular component that we don't necessarily understand yet. Because once the plane is found or once this mystery is solved, a lot of other things are going to make sense about each of the other hypotheses that are out there, I guess, it would seem like. So, you know, before we go any further and start dive into your story and what's going on, I don't want to bury the lead, which I'm very sensitive to, because for the whole first year we did our podcast, we just never said what we were going to talk about till way, like an hour <laughs> in. So, <laughs> and you correct me if I'm wrong, but the bottom line here, Bill, is that through various calculations, eyewitness accounts, and significant research, you have actually found an airplane that you believe has a decent probability of being Amelia Earhart's missing Lockheed Electra 10E in about 100 feet of water at a location that you feel aligns with a possible return track to Ley, New Guinea, where they took off from. Is that correct? It's about 105 feet of water. Okay. And, and 
The only thing I'm willing to say at this point is it appears to be consistent with the plane she flew. I just I say it that way simply so that I don't uh, overpromise anything to myself or anybody else. Sure, sure. I'd rather stay much more measured on it than to go off and uh, make assumptions and have to uh, step back or whatever. I'd rather be pleasantly surprised than embarrassed over the deal. So we have a plane that uh, appears to be consistent with it. It has about 10 similarities to the plane that she flew based on the uh, diving and things that have gone forward. I guess I'm just a little bit of a maverick. I think a little bit differently, I think, from some other individuals. And I just decided right from the beginning, uh, when I first started thinking about it back in 2003, before I uh, finished up with my work career, and I I played with the fuel for a couple years looking at it and just uh, looked at it as a puzzle at a distance and decided to at least give it a shot going over and see what I could find out. I was shocked to find out that everyone was looking to the east. And in my naivete, I like to draw a bit of a uh, edges, almost like a puzzle edges around the whole perimeter. And I was shocked to see that there was only one perimeter that was drawn in, and that was to the east. So I was looking at it and realizing 70% of her route had never been looked at. And I said, well, let me try something different. Let me start as far west as I could go. Rabat would be the first possible other plane location that she could land at or be going toward if she had to in some type of emergency. And let me sit down among the natives and just ask them, what do you know about a plane that went down in 37? What can you tell me? And I was planning to move uh, each major island group over a six-year period of time going farther east until I hit the Gilberts and track it that way and say at least somebody in 80 years has covered the entire area, the entire spectrum. And I was sitting one day in the Hamamas Hotel in Rabau. We were sitting under a volcano at the time. It was spewing a lot of ash from Tovar, Uh who was pretty active at the time. And I'd met some really interesting folks. Corey Chan was uh, related to the former prime minister, I guess, of uh, Papua New Guinea. And he took me around a little bit. He was going to Sydney to college at the time, wore Nikes and had on a regular American shirt. And in going through the uh, that opportunity at Rabau, I was quartered in the actual headquarters of what the... Japanese uh, commander had used as the headquarters for the fleet, and he had tunnels there and would point up to the ceiling at the various maps and things and decide where to strike next. And while I was there, I met Matt Foley, who was the last surviving coast watcher from Australia. And he'd been there through the war and had been up on top of a volcano calling back to Australia locations. So I met some fairly interesting people the initial go-round. And while I was at the Hamamas Hotel, there was an Australian chap who was training four, I guess, three or four local policemen from different provinces. And... The chaps riding with me from the police and from corrections 
we're all going to different provinces, taking different flights. And they asked me, what are you doing over here? And I said, well, I'm retired now. And I also am kind of interested in seeing if I can find out what happened to Amelia Earhart and the airplane. And the quietest guy behind me said, well, we know where there's a plane that's down. We don't know whose it is. It's been a mystery to us. Can you give me five characteristics of it? And uh, can you check back in three weeks? And uh, I'll let you know what we found. And so ironically, and I couldn't believe the plane was going to do this. The plane was due to go back to Port Moresby and then back down towards Sydney. And instead, in honor of the guys that had on board, it was taking a detour farther to the east and flying over Buka. So Dominic Char at the time, the guy that uh, sent me onto this plane, was on the plane sitting next to me. We sat and talked for about four hours before the plane took off. And he said, come forward. He said, I will show you as we come in for a landing. We'll fly right over the place where it is, and I'll point it out to you. And we did. The banked hard, looked down, could see the islands down below, could see Buka, et cetera. And three weeks later, he said, everything matched up. I said, what do you mean everything matched up? He said, all five points are true. It's a twin tail. It's a twin engine. And he went through the rest of the things that I asked him. He said, besides, we've got one other thing going on. Tiolo, the original diver, he said that found the plane again in 1995 or six, has now seen a picture of her plane. It says, get over here. It looks identical. Okay. Of course, you know, I'm a little bit slow moving and it didn't go straight over, but I started asking more and more questions. And from that, there was another chap locally there, David, that I worked through for a number of years and probably 40 letters back and forth of correspondence. Can you check this? Can you check that? And then getting us to closer to where we are today, four groups of divers have been diving on it and they all confirm that there is a twin engine, twin tail plane down there. The engines are visible. The cockpit is terribly encrusted. The tails can be seen, but it doesn't look anything like what I would call a plane today, even though it it is. Okay. So first of all, just so they have an idea of the geography of where this is all taking place, can you tell our listeners a little bit about where Rabal is and also Buka, because that's the location we're talking about that this aircraft is at, right? Yes. In the earlier days, Buka was considered the easternmost island of Papua New Guinea, or some people call it the northernmost island of the Solomons. I don't think the people of Buka would consider themselves either at this point in time, because in 2015, they declared their independence and consider themselves the autonomous region of Buka and Bougainville today. Okay. Uh, They've gotten their independence. They're completely independent now. Yes. Okay. They still have uh, flights and stuff in that come in, under the airlines from Papua New Guinea, but they are an independent country. And Buka is a country that has probably the largest copper mine in the world. And at one time back in the 90s, there was quite a uh, fight over it. Australia controlled it. And uh, there was some toxic uh, waste that went from the plant that either injured or killed a number of islanders. Oh, and one islander decided to sabotage the uh, copper mine. 
and uh, then Papua New Guinea blockaded along with Australia, I guess, Buka for a couple of years, and uh, they just kept on going about their business in spite of, of the blockade. So the blockade was then taken away, Okay, as I understand it. Hi, I'm Strike, and when my friend and I aren't staying up until insane hours of the night making segues for Astonishing Legends, we're listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. So to recap, this was your initial discovery or idea of the discovery of this aircraft was when you were on this flight? When we were literally on the flight. Yeah. And it went to Book, and then we went back to where we were going. And you could see the plane from the aircraft when you flew over? No, 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 okay. no. I could see the islands where it reportedly was at. Okay, gotcha. So from this point, moving forward, how did you get to where you're at today? How did it evolve from that point? From there on, uh, Dominic and David and I communicated back and forth. Who are those guys? Dominic, uh, his full name is Jericho Dominic Chara. It was head of uh, corrections at Buka. Okay. And was the original guy that I caught up with. Okay. David uh, later came into the picture, and we corresponded back and forth by letter, got divers down. Tiolo was the first diver. The important thing to remember is, and I can go in greater sequence if you want, we're kind of going out of sequence with the specifics. The plane that came in was originally seen by a kid on the beach that was in the early morning and said this particular plane that we're looking at, whoever it is, emerged out of the clouds and out of the sky in a bad thunderstorm. Left wing was on fire. The wheels were down. The plane came in and landed on a K, ripped the left wing back up off it, continued to sit right there for a period of time. The kid reported that uh, there were two people in the plane, and he said they were using their radios. The only thing I can think of is that if they were, Uh, They had their heads out of a navigator hatch at the time with headphones on that the kid later discovered happened to be uh, uh, radio equipment. I don't know how he would have known it any other way. How far offshore was it from him? It was uh, about 100 yards and moved closer to him over time. The plane then reportedly, according to the kid, moved left the K and was taken, I guess, as a tide came in in the current and was carried even closer to him. And then sometime later, I don't have exact times. I can't tell you for sure what the timing was, went down under the water. He told other people on the island, nobody believed him because uh, the thunder had been so loud, they didn't hear the crash. And uh, they didn't believe him, called him a liar and said, you, you must be seeing things. And it wasn't until Teolo in 1995 that they were able to to come back, look at it, and find out, shoot, there really is a plane down there. And uh, they apologized to the kid for calling him a liar. He was still alive, right? He was an old man at that point? He was still alive. David talked to him from about 1995 or 96 up till 2001 or two when the guy died. And there are others that still 
are old or as old as that guy that remember him as a kid talking about it on the island. But Dave pumped them for information because Dave was curious to know whose plane it was. And the time between when it landed and eventually sank, we're not talking because obviously that can take all kinds of different times depending on, you know, circumstances. We're just talking about the same night, not weeks or days or anything like oh, that. Oh, yeah. We're talking about a, a short period of time. We're talking about an hour or two. Right. Okay. Part of a time it was sitting on the sand and part of a time it raised up and gotten carried out. So... It couldn't float any length of time on its own, although her plane originally was made to be able to float indefinitely if it was completely empty of fuel. But remember, this left wing got ripped back, and so the integrity of it wouldn't have been as complete. The plane had come down and essentially made a mostly a, a water ditch, like a water landing, but ended yes. up on kind of a sandbar or a bit of a reef? Yeah, they call it a beach, I call it a K. Right, okay. But eventually the tide raises and it lifts the plane off of this resting place. Yeah. Now it's floating and then its time is short because it's, it's only going to be afloat for uh, maybe an hour or more. Yeah. Right. Yeah, evidently, uh-huh. Were there any specific dates associated with the eyewitness, with the little boy? No. The only thing that they'll insist on it is that it went down at 37, but they won't give any specific date. Oh, so they do insist on the year. Yeah, they do insist on the year being 37. Okay. While we're talking about it and what the boy had described, I wanted to get your, uh, maybe just an idea or, or a thought about if the plane is coming in and as the boy described it, the left engine or the left wing is partially on fire, what do you think may have happened as an accident? If it was storming, could it have been a lightning strike or something? I didn't know, and uh, I called my uh, expert on it at the time, Paul Rafford, and I said, Paul, what's the deal? I don't know how familiar you are with Paul Rafford, but Mm -hmm. uh, you want me to go over that real quickly? Yeah, absolutely. Paul Rafford used to fly as a navigator on that for Pan Am with the uh, Pan Am route through the South Pacific in the 40s, and later was at Houston when the Apollo 13 came in crippled. He was in telemetry at the time, and it's his responsibility to find out where the Apollo 13 was going to land and get all the resources out to it. So he's a pretty bright guy. Yeah. And in 1983, he was allowed to take all the communication and radio correspondence out of the Smithsonian and take it home to analyze. And he was the one that discovered that she actually flew over Nauru. Uh, It wasn't in the original flight plan at all, but there was a reference to it. And he was the one I asked the question about, what's the deal? I said, Paul, if we're right, what would have happened that would have caused her to have flown for 12 hours over Nauru figured something was wrong and ended up eight hours later in either an engine or or a uh, wing fire. I said to him, is it lightning? Is it overheating the engines? What's the deal? I said, I don't get it. And he laughed at me. He said, a very rare that lightning strikes cause a fire. He said, it can happen. He said, but it's much more likely an engine overheating where it's starved for oil gets so hot that when the oil hits it, it spurts and it catches it on fire. 
He said, we had that all the time back in the 30s and 40s. He said, even when I was flying a Continental one time, we lost one in the U.S. over a farm field. Dropped right off the plane completely. So he said, I'm guessing, he said, it's an engine fire. So I said, so you're thinking that it might be uh, she turned around because of uh, oil pressure or that kind of stuff? He said, I don't know. It's quite possible. And that was one of those areas of many that uh, looking back later, I think was only at best a partial answer on my part. His suggestion was a great one, um, but we're guessing that it could have at most been an overheated engine rather than an actual lightning strike that caught the wing itself on fire. How was Paul able to confirm that she passed over Nauru? He actually got the correspondence that was in there that made the arrangements, and Harry Balfour made the arrangements for him to fly over Nauru, and he was... uh, at uh, based at Ley at the time, and I think he was concerned to have as many actual ground checks as you could have. Okay. And so he had made arrangements for it, and uh, there's actual reference to it. And uh, at some point, I can go back and pull it. So it's a waypoint for her, essentially. It's a waypoint for her, and they turned on the phosphate lights at night. So she could see him and and the lights were capable of being seen from up to about 45 miles away. Okay. Very bright lights. And they wanted to have a second check. That wasn't part of her original route. Her original route was to go straighter over to Helen, but it only added about 30 some miles to her trip. Sure. How is it that you came to believe that this particular plane that's laying in the water off Buka is hers. When everyone else is looking everywhere else, everyone's talking about crash and sink and the castaway idea and all these other ideas. How did you come around to determining that this plane had a good probability for possibly being her plane? I had for years a feeling that um, she had not been able to get through or they would have found the plane by then. If they're looking at 30% of the area, why haven't they found it? And that was the first question. Could it be in the other 70%? Question in my mind. If you've got a crime scene, you check the whole area. If you've got a a place where something has occurred, it's a mystery, you're normally going to look at the entire area. And I'm thinking, why are they only looking at that one place? And it was because of the call-outs. Paul didn't believe them. And Paul was one of the most helpful guys on that. Paul said, I don't think she got anywhere close to Howland. And he wrote a book, uh, Rafford wrote a book called uh, Amelia's Radios. Yes. And it said in it 10 reasons why he thought she never got close to Howland. So that also intrigued me and interested me with a guy this bright who had taken a model of her plane home, built a scale model with the radio effects and fed it into a computer back in 83 for two months and then came up with some ideas on it. Paul and I see certain things slightly differently. He thought that the uh, call-outs were supposedly near were uh, pre-recorded. I don't particularly think so, but it got me thinking. And so I said, hmm, it's not 100% that she's in that area by Howland. How could she be any place else? Right. How could this plane that we're looking about B-52 
be hers. It doesn't make sense. For our listeners who might not know this or can't remember, do you know roughly how far it is from Ley? It's about 2,221 miles approximately, nautical miles. I'm looking at Google Earth right now, and I'm looking at uh, at Howland, and I'm seeing Nauru looks almost exactly halfway there. And like you said, just a little bit off a track for a direct flight. Yeah. Yeah, so it, yeah. Makes, it makes sense to add it as a waypoint, as like you said, to have those land checks. So that's interesting. So you're thinking that there was a mistaken conclusion by people developing other hypotheses with regard to her flight about how close she got to Howland Island. I wondered. Yeah. Why shouldn't I take a look at the other pieces while they're working? They could well be right. But wouldn't it make some sense to check out the other 70% of the route? In 80 years, was never checked. And so that got me thinking, you know, free thinking on it. And then I got to thinking something just January a year and a half ago didn't make sense to me and kept gnawing at me. I said, let me see what happens if we reconstruct the flight as much as we can, as much as I can from lay. And let's see what happens with it as it goes. Let's see if there's any way that the radio communications could actually flip. So if Howland is listening and the communication's flowing to them and they're hearing what they hear or skips in it, is there any way that there's not a conspiracy, not a cover-up, but there's just some honest mistake or not hearing or not understanding? what was going on that could be pretty simple. And it took me 12 days, because I'm not the fastest guy in the world, mentally or physically. It (laughs) took me 12 days to reconstruct the thing as best I could. And I was shocked at what I found. And no one had done this before you, had tried this approach before you? Well, I'm a little bit out there, so they're probably (laughs) a lot smarter than I am. I'm not going to waste my time doing that. (laughs) But in doing it, it just blew me away because... I'm looking at things like uh, Fred Noonan the day before they took off. Amelia's there, and she's saying the clouds and the wind are blowing in the wrong direction. I hear that. She's disgusted by it, waiting for good weather. And they ask Fred Noonan, how much gas are you taking off with? And he tells this guy from New Zealand, 950 gallons. Well, the plane can hold, depending on who you talk to, anywhere from 1100 to 1204 And so this guy from New Zealand gets an attitude and says to Fred, are you kidding? You're only giving yourself 10% extra for leeway? And he said, you don't get it. He said, we can only take off with 950 because of a length of the runway. Right. I'd never thought about that. They can't get it into the air if it has more weight on board. That's right. It can't weigh more than 15,300 pounds to take off on a 3,000-foot paved runway and this one's unpaved and even with that when it took off it still disappeared below the horizon right (laughs) it's like out of a movie a guy from pan am is watching up on the plane above watching the plane take off the plane's not taken off reportedly in the last 50 meters or so it hits the bump of a road that crosses across it and bounces it into the air The plane isn't flying. It's what we as pilots call ground effect, which means the ground is pushing it up, Uh but it's not flying. It went over the end of the cliff and disappeared from sight. 25-foot cliff on the other end of the site. Everyone goes rushing to see if she's crashed, 
and she's carving circles out about six feet over the tops of the waves until she went out of sight. That's ground effect too, technically, isn't it? So basically exactly. she's on the cushion exactly. over the water. Yeah. So she couldn't have carried any more gas. And she had never flown before, as far as I'm aware, with more than 947 gallons. And that was from Oakland to Hawaii. And it still had some change on it because the wind wasn't kicking them. So that was the first thing that blew my mind. I mean, I'd studied for years that had never even heard that or seen that. The bill that was given for the gas there was, I think, 684 gallons or something like that. I'm not sure the exact quote on it, uh, to fill it up from whatever it had in it before. But from everything I'm hearing, Lockheed specs on it called for that on a paved runway. They took off on an unpaved runway and almost cost their lives. So you're saying she had never flown with more fuel than that anyway? No. So even if they had been had a longer paved runway, it still would have been a first-time takeoff for her in terms of those conditions if she had been full? This was the first time because of the unpavedness and also the length of the runway and the amount of gas. She was carrying three more gallons than she had before. Uh And when she took off from uh, Oakland to fly out to Hawaii, Paul Mance was also working the the throttles with her. Right. So this is a brand new experience for her from everything I'm aware of. By your calculations then, they had made good math calculations about how much fuel it would actually take But at some point on their way to Howland, you believe that they were burning fuel because of headwinds, a shift in the the South Pacific trade winds. It was a miscalculation because they ended up actually expending more fuel than they had planned on. Plus, like you said, as a a full throttle climb uh, to get above the weather or get a better look. So does this lead to them thinking about an alternate plan here about they may not make it to Howland? Can I say it this way? They took off and I think burned 100 gallons of fuel in the first hour to get to altitude. And after that, 48 gallons per hour was her normal typical burn rate when the wind wasn't real strong. So I'm being conservative when I say 48 gallons per hour. And if that's what she burned, she burned 100 gallons in the first hour, then think of 11 hours of gas burned after that, you add another 528, you get a total of 628 out of the 950 she had. She's sitting there just after NARA with 322 gallons of gas. But here's the deal. She didn't realize that there was a problem when they first took off. At seven hours out, as I recall, in fact, let me see see what the uh, call out was. Here it is. At 5 o'clock, Greenwich Mean Time, she calls back to lay, but she's at 10,000 feet reducing altitude due to clouds. At 7 o'clock, Greenwich Mean Time, she's moved down to 7,000 feet and thought they were making 150 miles an hour. Well, listen to this. At 7.20, 20 minutes later, Greenwich Mean Time, they were over the New Kamano Islands, which is 785 miles from Lee. Their average ground speed was 107 nautical miles an hour. 
Okay. That's how much they were getting blasted by the wind coming at them. Right. And the wind, just to remind our listeners, is something. One of the surprises was that the trade winds, and you mentioned this a minute ago, are the opposite of the way they are expected to be for six months out of the year. And at the time, they did not know that in aviation navigation, right? That's correct. And nobody had bothered to inform her of that. Right. And I'm sure at that point in time, suddenly, there's this wake up got to be to Fred Noonan. He's doing the calculations and he's figuring, man, we're doing 107 nautical miles an hour. This pony's got to get rolling. Yeah. Either probably gives her a message on the fishing line up there. Uh, I don't think he probably went up there himself, but probably said, hey, look, this is what's happening. What's really interesting is everybody is mysteriously surprised about why she gets off the phone with Balford before eight o'clock when she could have stayed on longer. And what I'm surmising is, hey, she gets the message that we're really slow on where we are. And I think she's going total attention to the Cambridge analyzers at that point in time, trying to figure out how come I'm losing so much fuel so fast. What are the Cambridge analyzers? Cambridge analyzers control a fuel. I'm not wise enough to know all the specifics of how they regulate and meter it, but it's connected with the usage of the fuel and metering it. Okay. So she's got constant speed propellers on the plane, and I think she's probably trying to do everything she can to minimize the use of fuel, but keep in mind, she's still getting pounded by a 20-knot-plus wind coming at her sustained all the way to Howland. Is that right on the nose of her aircraft? Yeah. It's directly, she's going directly into that wind. Yeah. And you'll see a picture of it in my book if you want the wind action itself. It's going straight at her. They were not expecting anything over 10 to 12. She's getting hit by over 20 sustained and wasn't aware of it. Thought the plane was going much faster than it was. They get their route awakening. We're only going 100 seven nautical miles an hour it would have taken them at that rate over 21 hours to make it to howland put another way the plane would have fallen out of the skies at 1910 had they not turned around that's how much short they were how far from howland do you think that would have been they would have been 236 nautical miles short of Howland. However, there's also some fuel that cannot be fully used out of the 40-gallon tanks when you change back and forth with six tanks. And you can have as much as 16 to 40 gallons that you just can't use. Okay. And they would have been between 236 nautical miles short. And if you add in that other fuel piece, they could have been as much as 325 nautical miles short. Basically, they were probably scratching their heads after New Kamano, but when they rolled over and got to Nauru, they were almost two hours late right. to Nauru, right. down to 322 gallons. And at that point in time, it's quite possible if Fred came from the back of the plane, came up, and they had a little bit of a discussion about what they were going to do about <laughs> A little it. bit of a discussion. You think that might have been heated? <laughs> well, no, you, you actually think that it could have been an, as much as of an hour still going, well, at this point, in the wrong direction while they discussed what they were going to do. Uh, it could have been a period of time still going the wrong direction before before they turned around. So I wasn't there. I didn't hear it, but I imagine it could have been difficult. If I'm in Amelia's seat and I just barely saved my life taken off on yeah. a runway that's really too short for me, and I've bucked all those 
headwinds. The last thing in the world I'm going to be hearing is, hey, I've got to turn around. But anyway, the thought was, I think they very quickly adapted. And this is what really, I'm amazed at their brilliance. I think that's my best way to put it, under adversity. Because I think Noonan probably said, hey, look, Rabao is too tight. It's 908 miles away. If we keep going forward, we got another 955 headwind into Howland, and we can't make it. This thing's going to drop out of the skies. And he would have been able to plot that at about 19 hours and 10 minutes, it would literally fall out of the skies, burning at a 48 gallons per hour rate. And they didn't, which is one more idea I've got of why they did turn back. Because by turning back, they were saving fuel and burning, hopefully, at about 38 gallons per hour, just hanging in the skies, just doing about, and this is a guess, about 111 miles an hour for a seven-hour trip back over to Buka. Now with a tailwind. With a tailwind. And he would have said to her, look, we can still do this if we land at Buka." We can save the plane, we can save our lives, we can fuel up, we can go take the plane over to Rabao, and we can kick that back in again and fly the route, and we'll be four hours closer than we were originally at Ley. They got a 3,000-foot runway with amenities and tower at Rabao. Right. And I think that was the game on they decided to go for. I mean, I'm guessing at it, but that's my thinking. Because they had enough fuel, they flew directly over the airport at Buka, and the airport at Buka was made in 31 and 32 by the Australians. And by the way, out in that primitive area that people would call it that, I don't call it primitive, they're pretty darn sophisticated. Out in that area, there were three airports back in the mid-30s on Buka at the time. That's hard to believe, but there were. And one of them was 2,300 feet long. And would have been long enough to land that plane. Okay. By your estimation, if they had turned around and, and they're flying fairly normally now with the winds favoring them, but they come into Tabuka and they have some engine trouble, how much fuel, by your estimation, do you think that they may have had when they reached Buka? I'd only be speculating. I hate to do that, but I'm guessing... If it took them seven hours and if they saved 10 each hour by going from 48 down to 38, you're looking at maybe 70 gallons by the time they arrived at about 1912 over Buka. And I'll explain a couple more pieces of a thing, but I think, I think they circled Buka and I'll try to explain it in greater detail if I can, but uh, I think they were down to 70 and wasted about an hour trying to fly over this horrendous thunderstorm at Buka. It's the one thing they didn't count on. Right. And they got down as low as 1,000 feet, but they couldn't see below it. And they said, we're circling. And I think they were circling, trying to get a sunline in the morning. These folks were smart. These were smart cookies. And I think they were ad-libbing the key things Ironically, where they ended up when they eventually had the left wing on fire and ditched, if this is her plane, and I'm saying that because I don't know that for sure, if this was her plane, they were down to, from the 70 that they had, they burned up probably another better part of uh, 40 or, or so gallons. So they were down to 30 some gallons or so left in the plane. 
and the plane sputtered and apparently ran out of gas. You said that at below 40, yeah. it might be starved at that point, right? Yeah, you okay. can't count on it. And if you remember, Stultz going across the Atlantic with Amelia when she first was the first uh, woman to go across the Atlantic flying in a plane. When they got to their destination, as I recall, they said that uh, the gauges were still registering and they had 40 gallons and the engines were sputtering at that point in time, but they were lucky enough to glide in with it sputtering. Right. That wasn't an Electra, though, right? That was a... Uh... No, 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 no. Yeah. But with six tanks, you yeah. can't get all the gas out of them. That's all I'm saying. Right. So anytime you get down to 40, you might as well consider you're empty. Right. So on any long-distance flight where you've got these multiple tanks, that's just a side effect yeah. of the construction. You just couldn't count on it. You wouldn't want to risk it past there. Right. So they're on fumes, literally, as they're approaching... Buka, your suggestion is that they're on fumes. So you, essentially what you're saying is they took off, they realized pretty far in that they weren't making the speed they thought they were making. They'd used too much fuel, especially after having to make that climb off the water when they first took off and however long it took them to make altitude. They get out there, they find out they're way behind where they need to be. They have a discussion. They make a decision to turn around and save the whole flight by landing at a, a more suitable airport, and that's the plan, but it turns out that they just don't have enough fuel to make it due to the tragic fact that there's a thunderstorm like right where they need to be landing. Well, here's the irony of it. They had enough fuel to make it. They were just circling above it and couldn't find the airport because it's under all those clouds. Right. And so they're up there an hour flying over Buka. When they were going north-south, trying to look to figure out where they were, uh, that's when the left wing reportedly caught fire, if this is her plane. And I keep saying that because yes. I'm not even convinced myself that it is. Right. I don't know whose plane that is. But it matches up time of day. When I asked David what time of day was the kid on the beach, he said early morning. That's apparently when they go out and relieve themselves, and that's when he saw it. But basic uh, thing is, time-wise, it matches up exactly after that 2014, based on local time, and it also matches up with Nauru, and they said it's the same female voice, no engine hum, which means the plane had landed at that point in time just after a 2014 when she no longer was communicating anymore. And it also matches up time of day, and I'm not wanting to go too far out on a limb, but that's also the same time that it is possible that Betty heard her in Florida, the girl that reportedly claimed that she heard and recorded everything that she could write down at the time. Is that true? I don't know, and I'm not making a part of what I'm saying. Wasn't it Paul, Chris, I can't remember if this was on your show, who said that he he felt like it was impossible for that signal to reach Betty? Paul? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Paul Rafford thought it was absolutely impossible that the signal could reach. I've talked with a number of experts here at Wallops Island, which is like NASA, and they say, oh, yeah, it is signal skip wise. And I'll talk about that later. But I'm not bringing Betty stuff into the picture. Understood. Okay? Understood. And in fact, in my book, it's separate. I don't know. Right. And I'm not going to make it as if it's part of it. I'm just saying all the pieces that I'm aware of. 
that were there at the time. Right. As I said, the when we've talked about a, a little bit, ironically, I, I'd wondered at the time why the heck she didn't take off from Rabao, which would have put her four hours closer to her destination to begin with. And I was surprised that no one in the area talked about the wind and the changes of, of direction of the wind. But apparently it wasn't known by outsiders until 1943 when the British discovered it. But the local natives know about it. So why didn't she take off from Rabaul, you think? I think because New Guinea Airlines and I think Pan Am used lay. And she figured she'd have all the services there that she needed. Also, I went back to try to figure out any other reason. I know in May of... Uh, 1937, there was a volcanic eruption over the city, but there was only a dusting at the airport. They were flying in and out at that time. I don't know what I did want to take the risk or thought that she might need more more mechanical amenities there, but they had a major control tower with a 3,000-foot runway there at the time. And uh, so it was quite possible she could have flown out of there. Um, or uh, it's too bad nobody told her so that, you know, the wind was blowing in the other direction. She took off in December, you know what I'm saying? But there was a lot of push to get that flight up and rolling. So I don't know who all advised her because I'm not aware of all the pieces of it. I know Clarence Williams advised her about a fair amount of her flight, and they were worried about Africa, and that's why they reportedly changed direction and started going east for it because they were worried about the winds and the distance over there. But Howland by far was a greater risk on the length of time flying over open ocean without amenities, without runways uh, to land at. So I don't know. I'm not aware of any more of those pieces. If the boy had seen her plane, then by your estimation, and again, if she had found the airport in time, if she did not have engine trouble or that fire, she probably could have made it. Well, she would have made it had she been below a thousand feet. Right. But the clouds entirely with that vicious thunderstorm, any pilot that I know of doesn't want to fly through a thunderstorm because there's just no control. The downdrafts are so significant. You can have that plane full throttle and be pointed up and you can get absolutely thrown into the ground. If you remember that tragic incident with that uh, young girl that was trying to fly across country, when they took off into that thunderstorm mm-hmm. and they were probably full throttle up and it just smashed that, that uh, plane and killed everybody on it in the U.S. a few years ago. I can understand why she wouldn't have tried to get under it, but she had enough fuel to make it there. But I sure wouldn't have wanted to cut a hole through a thunderstorm. I'm Todd Sturgill, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Well, back to the show. Your math on all this, your fuel calculations, what you've determined about how much fuel she had when she took off and the headwinds and everything, it makes it possible or plausible that the aircraft that's in the water off Buka it makes it plausible that that could be her aircraft. The only part of the equation that you can't be certain on is when they would have made their turnaround, right? There are a lot of pieces of the puzzle that are are missing completely. The only thing that I can say is, based on the math that I put on paper, 
I can't understand how she could have gotten to Howland on 950 gallons of gas with a 26 uh, mile an hour headwind sustained over 20 to Howland. Uh, based just on the math, she would have fallen out of the skies at 1910 had she insisted on continuing that flight. She didn't. And the only way she wouldn't have is if she had uh, been able to fly at 38. The only way she would have been able to fly at 38 would have been to have turned around. But I can't tell you for sure exactly when they turned to go back, but it was somewhere around hours 12 to 13, and I can't tell you exactly in there. I don't have enough pieces, but I'd rather just say I don't know that piece. You know, did she fly directly just to Naro and turn back? I think they probably talked as they were approaching the island. It would take them the better part of 15 minutes, half an hour to get actually over the island from when they first saw it. So they could have even had a half an hour talk before they even got to the island and still turned around a few minutes after that. But I have no idea. I just don't want to speculate that far out on a limb. No, we totally understand that and uh, really respect that position. If you could explain a little bit about one of the most fascinating elements, I believe you have said the mystery lies within the radio transmissions there at the end. And the thing that I find fascinating is that if you believe that she was near Howland, they mean one thing, but they mean something else if you believe that she had turned around and was actually closer to to Buka. Could you talk a little bit about that and and how you believe that these key radio transmissions are, you know, maybe the most significant pieces to this puzzle? Yeah. What was really, really odd, I'll pull the, the stuff that I've got that deals with the actual flight, because I know Chris asked me at one time, can you tell me where they were at the different call-outs? Right, right. They've given you the first section up to Nauru, but I have I have it roughed out with them possibly turning from Nauru around just after 12 midnight, seven hours back to Buka at possibly about uh, 111 miles an hour. And this is all guesswork, so I don't want to go too far out on a limb. It's just a guess. But at 14.15, she called in 14.15 Greenwich Mean Time. She called it out and was heard, but it was static and not understood. I think at that point she was about 222 nautical miles west of Nauru on her way back. And at the call out, my own personal opinion is she may well have said, I'm low on fuel, I'm turning back, and I'm trying to make it to Buka, but nobody would have heard. At 15.15 Greenwich Mean Time, she called out again and said overcast. At 16.24 Greenwich Mean Time, she called back and said partly cloudy. During that time, she would have gone from 222 nautical miles west of Nauru to about 450 nautical miles west of Nauru, if the projection on the speed is accurate. I think that's the key. Those three phone calls out, they heard her, but they couldn't hear her. And they didn't know what they didn't know. Simply put, they didn't know that she had turned back and she didn't know that they hadn't heard her. Right. I think she assumed, well, they heard me. I told them I'm going back to Buka. So what's the big deal? (laughs) I'm fighting for my life here on it. 
And I don't think she ever said Earhart Cohen Atasca. That's what's written in the ship's log. Right, right. And that could that could throw you off. That was written by the Atasca crew. I don't think she ever said K-H-A-Q-Q calling Atasca. She just started in with what she was going to say. And in fact, she blew up at him at one point and said, quit speaking in code, speak in English right. to him. She was furious at one point on it. I then find it interesting that uh, at 1745 Greenwich Mean, she says, I'm about 200 miles out approximately. At 1815, I'm about 100 miles out. Paul Rafford immediately got his ears perked up over that. And she says, this about is ridiculous. They should have had a sun line and known exactly where they were. Right. Well, hey, if they turned west, there's no sun line. Right, right. Right. At 1912, she says, we must be on you but can't see you. Gas is running low but unable to reach you by radio. We're flying at altitude 1,000 feet. Why are they at 1,000 feet? Howland is clear. Not anything around weather-wise forever. You're not going to be flying at 1,000 feet over Howland. You're going to be as high as you possibly can be to be able to see the islands. Right. That's another really fascinating element to this, if you take what she's saying and match it up to the conditions at Howland is that they were clear. So what is this cloudy or partly cloudy that that she's reporting? Now, here's the other pieces to it. She was on 3105 night band and the signal skips, they were showing her as recording an S5 like she's in the next room. You get signal skippage. One minute you can't hear, the next minute it's like you're in the next room. It bounces off the ionosphere. The shortest the wavelengths, the better it bounces and skips. And she was on her night frequency at the time that she made that 1912 call. It was recorded as an S5. Just going through the mechanics of it, the higher the frequency will less bend by the ionosphere. The highest frequency at which the ionosphere will bend the radio waves is called the maximum usable frequency, MUF. MUF depends on solar radiation strength, the time of day or night, night is ideal. Under ideal conditions, you can have scattered propagation possible for over 3,000 miles. Sunspot cycle is important. The sunspot cycle vary in number and size over an 11-year cycle. When the sunspots are low, you want radiation and the MUF are lower. What she had was high Rather than low at the time, she had high solar activity on that cycle. 36 and 1937 were the highest in the sunspot cycle. Near the equator is important. During the summer is important. There's more ionic activity. Therefore, in essence, favorable conditions were as follows. Her low frequency at night, she was near the equator, more ionic activity. In the summer, more ionic activity, high solar activity in 37, and the maximum usable frequency skip. Shortwave radio operators know way more than I'll ever know about this. But that's what I have for the reasons why. Sometimes she was coming in really, really strong, and sometimes she wasn't. I would even argue she was trying to reach Buka on the last few calls, not the Atasca. And couldn't reach them because they didn't have their ears on yet because they weren't awake in the morning. They weren't expecting her. 
you know, it's at uh, five o'clock in the morning, they're not going to be on. Same with Rabau. They're not going to be on. Right. At 1928, I've got her circling over Buka, facing east to get a sun line. At 2014, we're on line of position. We'll repeat this message. I have her 12 miles west of Buka in a thunderstorm. So that's my best answer I can give to the radio transmissions, how Itasca could have heard what they heard, and also how she could have been flying in the other direction at the same time. The keys to it are that 1415, the 1515, and the 1624. What was said? Did she say, I'm turning back? Right, which they don't know. No. Personally, in 1980, just a quick little aside, my mother and I drove from, we moved together from Denver, Colorado to North Carolina, and CBs were all the rage, and I was very young, but she would let me talk on the CB and I talked on the CB the whole way to all the truck drivers, asked them where the cops were. I knew all the language, everything. And I remember on that trip, it only happened once, but I had a good 10 or 15 minute conversation with somebody. And at the end of it, I asked him what his 20 was, which meant his location. And he was fully three states away from us. And we had been talking yeah. for quite some time and eventually we lost him. But it was pretty amazing. Yep. And uh, even back then, they were like, it's Skips. It's working on Skip right now. And that was just a yep. CB, which isn't even really all that powerful. Yep. <laughs> That's my best way of putting back. Now, there was one other piece. I try to keep it as, in my mind as simple as I can and not try to add stuff to it uh, to the extent that's possible. I know that the 7500 crystal was put into the airplane by the military. I know that certain things were asked of her. I don't see a big conspiracy. Maybe I'm naive. All I see is, hey, maybe they told her, hey, if you can, land at Canton instead of Howland. The birds are terrible flying off of there. And uh, Canton's got a longer runway. We've got fuel there. The eclipse just happened. The British are there. The Americans are there. Chill out. We'll map the South Pacific. Some of the islands we're not familiar with since the 1800s. Some of them were 60 miles off from when they were reported to be. We'll map the South Pacific, and then we'll suddenly discover you, and you can fly on. And the only reason I say that as a possibility is Morgenthaler blew up one day to Eleanor Roosevelt's secretary, heard the discussion that said she disobeyed all orders. Well, what were her orders? I'm thinking maybe they just wanted her to land at Canton, go on when she was rested from Canton to uh, Hawaii, say, I landed on a nearby island for X reason. Sorry about that. A native had time to map the South Pacific. I don't build any more into it than that. That's just speculating at, at best, but I don't have any reason to think there was a big conspiracy theory. Most of the places that would have been strategic that she would have flown over would have been at nighttime. Right, right. And so I, I just don't make anything more of it than, than that. The one thing that they do know that, you know, is confirmed that's her voice and her radio transmission is the weather description. And if they think that she was near Howland, you may not know this, but what's the closest she could have been to Howland at that time with the reported weather conditions and still describe those conditions, even if she was kind of off course? Okay, you mean the ones on the 14-15 and yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. You'd add about 950 miles into the 
222. So she would have been over a thousand miles away at 14, 15 from Howland and uh, averaging about 11 to 1200 miles away during those phone calls. So she was at that point way off course then. In other words, if she turned back, which I'm saying I think she did, right. that's where she would have been in the air at the 1415, at the 1515, and the 1624. How far out do the trade winds extend? Do they change or do they not change before you get to Howland? Are they consistent that, that far yeah, out? Yeah, they're consistent all the way out and they change direction every six months. And they blow pretty consistently. It's what they call them the trade winds. But at that point in time, not factored into the account. What you've determined about the fuel, I mean, do you know, and maybe this is a question for you, Chris, but like, do the other hypotheses that are out there, the primary working ones, are any of them working off of the idea that 950 gallons or so were what she had on takeoff and she was fighting with the trade winds? Because my question is, how does that affect all the other existing hypotheses? Not that I know of, but I know that it's one of those things that have been, it's really a wild card when you look at all that, because the you know, you got to keep in mind, they, they weren't supposed to, they were supposed to originally fly west to east as opposed to east to west. And uh, it was going to be a totally different scenario. We would have probably been a totally different page in the history books at that point if she was able to take off originally in the manner in which she wanted to, of course, before the ground loop incident. So as far as I know of, I think Bill is the only one that's actually spoken to that. I know the trade winds have been a lot, there's been a lot of talk on the trade winds, whether or not the trade winds were were there, whether or not they were there, whether or not they played a factor into things, or, uh, you know, and all that good stuff. But as far as actually focusing on that, I think Bill is probably one of the only ones. Well, you know, a couple of the other authors have talked about the length of time. For example, East to Dawn, it's indicated that uh, she was 107 nautical miles at seven hours, 20 minutes at the 784. And it was projected it would be over 21 hours for her to get to Howland. And also, in Mary Lovell's book, Sound of Wings, fairly similar discussion and description as far as as far as the distances. I don't know whether or not uh, there was anybody else that did any computation on it. I'm just one of those guys that sits down and says, let me look at this. You know, what's the math tell me? If it was 107 for the first third of the trip, and it's mirroring that just over halfway, and it's reportedly the same amount there, it would have been probably about 21 hours and 14 minutes to get in there had she had sufficient fuel. And Bill, let me interject something a little bit here because I, I think it's really crucial to note. And everything that you know, Bill's discussed tonight on the show and, and kind of breaking down the hypothesis a little bit and kind of talking about the fuel, and of course, before we get into the actual site of where the plane rests today, it's really important to sort of note Bill's attitude about this whole thing. And I think that's one of the things that we, you know, should really be kind of commended for him is, is the fact that he is not saying unequivocally, this is the plane. What he is saying is that it very well could be the plane and it is certainly a plane that much we do know. And I think what's interesting is, you know, we've all talked about this before on various shows, but really it comes down to hypothesis 101 and that's something that we all talk about in science class in high school is that when you have a hypothesis or something that you believe to be the truth your job as the person working that hypothesis is to prove that it's anything other than what you say that it is so that way when you approach everything and you put this out there the only thing left on the table is what you say it is and so i think bill has done a lot of excellent work as far as working kind of reverse engineering that working backwards you talked about the five points of 
you know, all five of those points lined up. And once you started doing the fuel calculations and so once you started putting the math in, it all seemed to line up. And I think you combine that, you couple that with Bill's attitude as far as, look, let's get down there. Let's either rule it out and say, it's, you know, this isn't the plan after all, or let's make the, the discover the holy grail of aviation. So either way, even if it ends up not being the plane, he might be able to tell someone's story that possibly was lost during that time. You know, maybe not Amelia, but somebody else. It's a win-win, I think. Of course. It really is at yeah. this point. That's what I really love about the hypothesis here is that it starts with a plane. And I believe, as Bill has said before, uh, he's done what probably no one else has done yet, work backwards. And starting with a plane and then taking that route along the 70% of the route that has not been explored. That's right. And fitting the, the pieces there. But could you tell us about what's been found on the plane by the divers? Because that is extremely compelling, I think. There have been, I think, about four sets of divers down. Tiolo, and then a guy named John, then Ken and Peps, and Elijah more recently. Reportedly, and I need to say reportedly, I've not seen this with my own eyes, okay? So I don't want to be dogmatic and say this is what's down there. It's reported by the divers and seems to appear that way, but it's twin tail. We've got pictures of what appears to be twin tails, twin engine. They report door and back on the pilot side. Entry to the cockpit through a navigator's hatch, no doors up front. Toothpick props, meaning it's not a warbird, they're straight across. The loop on the top of the cockpit reportedly is broken off at the base, and the base is visible. Reportedly, it has wheels rather than sticks. It has... uh, reportedly long-range filler ports on the pilot side. Wheels for controlling the aircraft, as opposed to a a stick, right? Like steering wheels, instead of sticks, like the warbird said. Long-range fuel tanks inside the plane, and that's only from... Ken and Peps were really mystified, and they called me up, and they said, Bill, what are the three large aluminum boxes? Well, they're not three, but if you look at it at a particular angle, it's you're going to see the dominoes lined up that are going to look like they're on the floor and then two on each side. They were hoping they held gold. <laughs> they don't. Right. right. So we know it's not a gold plane. And we knew a long time ago it wasn't a gold plane, but uh, it was checked out for that anyway. And there's, there's a reason for that that I'll, I'll get to in a second. But uh, it was directly on the route she flew. The time fuel, and distance appear to match exactly. Interestingly enough, one other tidbit, one of the other authors talked about the fact that she was flying testing out sunglasses. Well, I mentioned it twice in a podcast with Chris. Well, it intrigued me because there was a pair of sunglasses seen in one of the shots we've got. And I, I bugged the divers. I said, why'd you leave your glasses on the... Uh, plane and they said we didn't wow yeah cue the twilight zone theme (laughs) so okay bill real quick so you just shot off a handful of things the uh yes you know we got to add of course the the length of the plane which i know bill will get into in a minute for the sake of folks who are listening to the show right now out of the list of things you just mentioned how many of those things are in fact consistent with amelia Earhart's Lockheed 10 electra those all 
would be similar to what she flew with. I'm not saying it's her plane, but they would be similar. The twin right. tail would be similar, the twin engine, the door and back, etc. would all be the same. Now, a couple of other things. I tried to prove a null hypothesis. I tried to prove it could be any other plane. The Air New Guinea planes were all taken back to Australia prior to the war in 41. Also, there were two gold planes that reportedly flew out of Ley in 37. One of them was found a few years ago on the mainland. The other hasn't been found yet. So I don't know if that's the plane Billings is looking at or for or not. But anyway, there's still one gold plane out loose. But this isn't it. We know because of the fact that uh, Channel 7 sent in a couple divers. They were terribly distraught that there was no gold in the plane that they could see from the outside knew that there wasn't any. Channel 7, that's the local for Abuka news station? Uh, no, that was Channel 7 out of Australia. And Australia oh. had uh, gotten together and sent uh, a couple of the divers in to check the plane out. And they lost all interest as soon as they realized it didn't hold gold. Like Al Capone's vault. Yeah. <laughs> so also at the time of day that it landed was in the early morning. They didn't fly, as far as I know, at night over open water, typically. Too risky. But this plane would have had to have taken off in darkness to have flown from any other logical site except a long-distance site. It was measured by one of the uh, dive teams and reportedly is similar length to the plane she flew. Uh, ironically, I've got three individuals from the U.S. that want to go over and dive for free to check it out that are experienced divers. And one of them said to me the other day, well, how do you know it's not a Beechcraft Bonanza King Air? They're pretty similar on the tails. And I said, yeah, they are. I said, and I've looked at a 52. I said, but what you'll find out is they're three or four feet shorter. Okay. So even my own team is positively challenging me, which they should. <laughs> But the Bonanza's tail, the, even the twin tail on the Bonanza is kind of in a V shape, isn't it? Well, no. The King Air and the earlier ones had upright tails. Oh. One of the uh, planes that uh, Rick thought it might be was a World War II plane, but it has much sharper tails. And the nearest one that's down is about 22 miles away in the Buka Passage, and it's on about 70 meters. Okay. Uh, so it's not this plane. Okay. So I tried to look at anything else it could be, but I'm, I haven't seen it with my own eyes. I haven't seen the numbers. I haven't seen. So I'm just saying it's a plane that's similar to the one she flew until we know. Right. I think one of the most intriguing pieces found inside the plane was supposedly some kind of a travel case with initials yeah. on it. Yeah. Can I explain that a little bit? Yeah, please. Yeah, please. Yeah. The pictures of the plane, as you can see, are very, very difficult to look and pick up anything out of. I spent probably a thousand hours going over them mm. at all different angles on my computer. And if that doesn't drive you crazy, nothing will. <laughs> we know. <laughs> what I found out was uh, on the nose cone of the plane, not only is the nose cone off of the plane now, but there's a uh, section that looks to be about three feet by four feet that has come off of the nose and is sitting down beside the nose. And I asked the guy that 
was a friend of mine that worked for Lockheed at one time. I said, what's the deal? And he laughed at me. He said, Bill, are you crazy? He says, we used steel rivets back then. They'd have rusted through by now. What do you think? Ah, right, right. Hadn't even occurred to me. I'm not, I'm not that smart. <laughs> uh, and I looked inside, and what appeared, as I pulled it up on my monitor, what appeared to be a suitcase. I can't guarantee you that it is. It's just, yeah. and it appeared to have monogrammed initials, the G above it, the P below it, and a lock on one side. And I was in a crazy mood one day and asked somebody that was close to the stuff that might know that will remain nameless. What would she have been doing flying with her husband's luggage? And the person said, I'm shocked. So what are you shocked about? I said, I thought you were looking in the wrong place. (laughs) So between the lines, you felt like that was a confirmation that you're on the right track. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's one more interesting tidbit, but I can't put too much into any of those things, but cumulatively, they're interesting. Right, right. Now, just for our listeners, uh, the the initials GP may have stood for George Putnam, her husband at the time. It's possible. Right. Reportedly, at each of the stops, she had each of the stops stamped with the local airport and country for 4,000 first-a-day edition stamped envelopes that they carried in suitcases. Right. I don't know whether she had only two suitcases with her or four. 4,000 envelopes, I'm assuming, would probably be a couple suitcases. But then again, I could be wrong. But uh, we do know that she had those in the nose of the plane. But that's all we know. And the photographs are so difficult to see and read. I don't want to read in too much to it. I don't want to read into it that that's her suitcase or his suitcase. It was just a question I had and asked at the time. Right. One of the more gruesome but realistic aspects of this. There also appear to be remains inside the plane. The only thing that I will say, because we've got family that I need to be aware of. Sure. Sure. There appear to be the remains of at least one person in a plane, maybe two. That's really all I want to say about it. If it's my relative, I don't want people saying a lot. Sure, I totally understand. But it's kind of interesting and also to fitting that within what was described by the boy on the beach, if he's saying that possibly they were still on board uh, the plane and trying to use the radio... You know, a lot of people think that they crashed, but they got off the plane and survived for a while or somehow made it to dry land, at least for a little bit. What you've got to realize is it's got swift current running past there that carried the plane for a distance. You also are, are just finishing or in the middle of a thunderstorm, which has thunder and lightning, and I don't want to get in water when lightning's hitting that water. Right. If you think about it, we don't know to what extent they were or weren't injured in the crash. And the only thing that anybody could, uh, if anybody wanted to try to go past that, they'd have to go over and Google Betty's notebook, but I'm not going to speculate any farther out in that direction. Bill, I wanted to ask, when you were on our show and we talked, this is way back in episode five, so just to refresh people's memory, we also talked about the fuel tanks, the onboard fuel tanks. And I wanted to ask you, if you could talk to the Astonishing Legends listeners about the fuel tanks, if fuel tanks have been confirmed by dive teams, 
that's something you haven't confirmed yet, but are there any kind of remnants of any kind of large tanks, metal tanks, inside the cockpit or inside the plane? Yes. Ken and Peps broke a news to me by saying, what are these three large aluminum, t- uh, they called them boxes, because I mean, that's their language rather than tanks. What are these large, three large aluminum boxes? And I'm sorry, but I broke out laughing when I heard it, because I said, oh, shoot, to myself, you got to be kidding me. So I could tell they were trying to look in and figure out what was there, and there was from the angle they were looking in at, I could tell that they couldn't see that there was a series of domino-like tanks together. And total, including the wings and everything, they were reportedly about six tanks, as I recall. But from the angle they were looking in, uh, I've got a mock-up of the plane that strips down and shows you the interior, and that's exactly what it looks like from one of the angles. It looks like three individual large tanks. And they said, what are the three large box, aluminum boxes that are in the, inside the fuselage? You haven't published in the book all the pictures that you have, I'm guessing? Yes, I have. You have. Is there one in there of this? Because I don't see, but of course it could be the copy I have. I don't see one of the briefcase in the nose. The one that showed the briefcase in the nose is the one that shows the front of the plane from the co-pilot side. Okay. And you'll see that the nose cone is off of it. And that's about all you see. I had a really good, what would I call it, monitor here. And I was able to expand it and bring it really, really wide and up. I took a number of pictures of the suitcase and we were going to put it in the book. But the problem was it's not clear enough. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to put okay. anything in that I couldn't show it was clear enough. I'd be glad to share it with you, you know, at Atchison or sometime. But yeah, it, definitely. But, it, but it's just uh, not clear enough. And it looked almost as if on the G, as if it had fitting pieces that something went over. And what went over it to make it smooth had popped off of it. But the P still had its container over the rivets. First of all, your story is so intriguing to me. I'm, I'm so interested in it. I really appreciate your taking the time to come on our show and talk about it. What is next for you? I mean, you are, I, it's my understanding that you have something planned, right? Well, we need to get permission to get back in. It took me six years in the beginning to build enough trust to be able to be asked to come in. We've applied for it in the past, and it takes a little bit of time to get permission from the government to come in and from the landowners and the chiefs. And we're in the process of doing that right now again. We've got three veteran divers from the U.S. that have contacted me that want to go over but have different skill sets. Got master divers and uh, some people that are good at underwater photography. And they contacted me and said, I'd really like to go. I'll go for free, you know, if you can pay our way over. Uh, for it, we'd really like to be part of this. So right now we're waiting for the permission to go in. We're also in the process of uh, trying to get everything equipment-wise in order that we'd need here. You can't fly in with tanks full, and uh, you got to have compressors over there that you can rely on for filling the air tanks, and you got to have side sonar, which we'll have. But it's expensive. Just getting the basics over there, you're talking probably about 80000 
originally I was hoping for 60-some, but it's looking like 80,000 just to get all the equipment roughed over there. So how are you financing this? Well, if I have to, I'll pay it. Uh, I would prefer not to. I'd prefer to have a sponsor come on board that's interested in the historical aspects of it. I don't want to do any treasure hunting. I've already told the three individuals going over that uh, the only things we bring up are things that we need to check to authenticate, but we're not taking any souvenirs out of that. This to me is a uh, historical site where two people that were very important to our country died. And uh, to me, it's like Arizona. It's be like a shrine. It needs to be a site that's respected. So if I had a sponsor that was interested in the uh, historical aspects of it, uh, that would be great. And uh, we'd like to find out who died in the plane and at least be able to tell the family who died in it. And who's to say, but any other person that died in it isn't important. They are. Yeah, of course. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben James, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Forrest, can you, are we good? Are we prepared to sponsor this? We can. <laughs> well, here's what I would suggest: <laughs> we can't afford it. Is that, uh, of course, you know, you, what you do is you reach out to uh, one of the cable shows like History or National Geographic, and I'm sure that's, of course, been tried before. It's hard to get them moving and any kind of a TV deal. Uh, cemented. But, you know, that's what I would suggest because you want to see this. I mean, I want to see the the whole adventure, the whole expedition for me. See, I, I would go with anonymous benefactor because those TV guys are going to get in there and try to control everything and well, take all the credit. There is there is that <laughs> if you can do, uh, you know, but I would say it needs to be documented in some fashion because even if it turns out that it's another plane entirely has nothing to do with her, that's still, as you said, Bill, that's a fascinating story about a trip that didn't end well in a historical time and, and place and and connected with that. But, you know, what I'm worried about is like if something is privately funded by outside factors with their own motivations, then yep. maybe some pieces of that does not get out to the public. And, and it's something that we're all just, you know, extremely fascinated about. And, you know, guys, if I can interject uh, just again real quick, what's really important about this is it's something that he's done the homework on. Um, it's something that at first you look at this, you start from scratch and you, you have no similarities. And when you start looking at the flight path and you start looking at the radius, you start looking at the actual flight plan and what makes sense and what common sense would tell you. And you start looking at the math and the fuel and the location of the plane. Is that on her path in some way, shape or form? When did it fall down out of the sky and when did it actually end up in the location that it's at. You know, what does the plane look like? What is the dimensions of the plane? Is it twin tail? Is it twin engine? You know, and then you start looking, looking at things like the possibility of a briefcase there with the initials of GP on it. When you add all that stuff up, it just gets increasingly more likely that this very well could be the plane that, you know, the entire world has been looking for for so many years. And Bill's extremely humble about this. But look, at the end of the day, when things line up in the way that they do, if we're looking at this as a piece of evidence in a jury trial case, or if we're investigating as a team and something like this comes up, what are you going to do? Are you going to just ignore it and throw it out and say, oh, it's probably not it? Or are you going to investigate the hell out of that and make sure that it's either not it or maybe the cornerstone piece of evidence in your case? So that's kind of, with Chasing Earhart, that's kind of been our position all along. And, and that's what I think a position that Bill shares himself is like, look, this very well could not be the plane. We're not saying 
that it is, but it should be looked at. It's a hypothesis like Japanese capture, like crash and sink, like the Nicomoro hypothesis, like all those that warrants some attention to have a team go out there and look at this and get eyes on this, this aircraft and either, hey, say, look, at you know, it's not it, and maybe find out who that aircraft belongs to, rather, and tell the story and complete that uh, piece of history for the families that were affected by it or possibly discover the holy grail of aviation. And like I said before, it's a win-win. And I think it, the work that Bill's done over the course of the last 10 years, 10 plus years is, you know, it's worth it. It certainly warrants it. And I think, you know, it's one of those things that people should really pay attention to. I couldn't agree more. I just will have to to look to see how much, you know, I can really uh, afford to pony up to do it. Because I'm getting older and 80,000 is a fair amount. You know? Yeah, sure. <laughs> How far away are you, you think, from getting permission from the uh, local chiefs and everything? Days, weeks to maybe a month or two. Close. Oh, so you're yeah. close. Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing that's admirable, I, I think it's good that you're being real nonspecific about the exact location. I think that's important, yeah. and I'm, I'm glad. Yeah. I think that, again, as Chris would say, that shows your point of view and your respect for what's happening here. Let me ask this question. I feel like I asked this way back when we did our show on Amelia, but do we have any idea how many Electras, 10 specifically, are missing right now? No. We don't. I, I don't know how many are missing. I can't remember what it was, 100. I can't remember how many that they made originally. There were a few in the area. Air New Guinea used most of them. And it's the Air New Guinea's all return, but I don't know beyond that. I really don't. Right. It's an interesting question. And until I actually see some strong evidence, I'm not willing to say anything more as far as the likelihood of whose plane it is, because I just don't think it's not comfortable for me to, to get out too far ahead on my skis. Sure. And you have spoken to Lockheed about the props that you have photographed, right? Let, let me straighten that out. Okay. I talked to an acquaintance of mine who was in the area who worked for Lockheed. Okay. And he looked at the pictures I had, and he looked at it and said, those look like ours when he looked at the uh, props and at the engine. I don't want that comment to be misconstrued to say that the scientists at Lockheed, you know, sure. said X, Y, and Z, because I don't want to start rumors going. I have talked with Lockheed's antiquities folks and have lined up, should we be able to get numbers out of it? Can you go back and figure out from those parts where it goes? And they said, yeah, we can do it. And when I sent them the pictures in 2011 or 12, they looked at them and said, you know, we can't rule it in. We can't rule it out. But they said, but we honestly got to tell you, we're supporting Rick at the time and his endeavors. So we can't take, we're not going to take on another endeavor right now. Mm -hmm. And so Lockheed wasn't interested in following up on it at the time. National Geographic and Smithsonian both interviewed me. Smithsonian brought in four people and they spent four hours. We were only going to spend one. And they brought in their air and space supposed expert. And we were sitting around the table and uh, I said, well, it appears to me that 70% of her route has never been searched. And she said, it's not true. I said, name me the person that searched Puka. Her head hit the table. <laughs> She's running on automatic. Everybody's going on the same 
deal. When National Geographic finished with me, it said, we're going to talk to one of our experts, and then we'll let you know what we'll do. National Geographic comes back and said, we think you're looking in the wrong place. Smithsonian, same type of thing. And so uh, at this point, I still communicate back and forth with some reps from the Smithsonian. They took it seriously enough to put it as one of the four or five theories of what happened to her plane two years ago in one of their magazines. But uh, they're not willing to put forth any cash to go check it out, which I understand. You get calls daily, probably, mm-hmm. about we found this, we found that. And I'm just surprised at how many people run an automatic and still believe the exact early stories that were said because that's the way it is. You yeah. know, because of the call-outs yeah. and won't complete the rest of the puzzle. I got to put the puzzle edges in before I fill in the rest of the puzzle. I just got to know what the perimeters look like. When 70% of the of the perimeters is not accounted for, give me my puzzle pieces. I got to put it together, <laughs> you know? Right, right. But I got my comeuppance the other day. I worked on a three-dimensional puzzle. And believe me, it took me two weeks to put 500 pieces together. <laughs> so you I'm like doing puzzles. Yeah, I do. You told me this morning when we spoke um, about setting up this call, a little bit about your background before you retired. Yeah, I uh, worked for the state of Maryland for 30-some years as program administrator. And I uh, did a lot of statistical work and in a psych lab for a year also, on the side, I did counseling and corporate coaching, corporate coaching for about seven years and counseling where you had to look and figure out uh, behaviors and figure out trends and those types of things. So I'm used to taking the math part and I'm used to taking the human part and using both hemispheres and looking at what's there. Yeah. Because you've got to. You can't just run off of one or the other. Right. It takes both hemispheres looking at a situation. And I've been wrong on some stuff. Let me give an example where I was wrong. When I called Rafford, I started thinking, well, maybe what happened was she overheated the engine. She overheated it in Tucson. They were working on the duct work, and, and that was the left engine. They were working on duct work out at Lay before she took off because of overheating. Maybe the engine overheated, and maybe that's really what happened. But that was before I'd looked at the fuel. Once I looked at the fuel, I said the main problem was the fuel. She may have also seen the low oil pressure, but that was not the main deal. So you got to be able to throw away a piece of what was your important to you and you thought was a key piece and be able to throw it away when it just doesn't fit right. Yeah. And you can't, you can't force fit the pieces. They either fit naturally on their own or they don't. Yeah. In terms of the the takeoff amount of fuel, how did you find that information? I mean, I know there's the receipts for how much they put on, but it's hard to know what was on before. How did you, again, confirm that the total was around 950 gallons? What I did was I went off of what Noonan said the night before they they went out of there. Right. Noonan said the night before, and, and I can get you the actual quote, and it was a, a press guy from New Zealand that pressed him okay. at lay. And the guy pressed him and says, you're nuts. Aren't you crazy enough to fly with 950? And he said, look, we flew from Oakland into Hawaii, and we still had three hours of fuel left. 
and she flew with 947 gallons. We're going with 950. He pressed him again. He says, you don't understand. He said, let me put it in specifics. We can't take any more fuel than that because of the weight. Let me just mention one other key thing. I did it as precisely as I could. The plane empty weighed 9,200 pounds. I put Fred Noonan down as 145 pounds. I put Amelia at 125. She's been estimated between 118 and 130. Six pounds per gallon of gas to 950 comes out at 5,700 pounds. Just from those items alone, you're up to 15,170 pounds. Then in addition to that, you've got at least two, possibly four suitcases in that plane, chart and books. And all that before that adds up to 15,170. And that's assuming that the the weights were pretty close. So that 130 pounds, the the two to four suitcases, and uh, the charts and books that they used in there must have come up pretty close to 15,300. And I wouldn't have tried to hit the absolute max at 15,3. If I was at 15,170, I'd have stopped. Yeah. Uh, especially if I'm on an unpaved runway. And it says paved runway. Most pilots won't exceed what's said in those envelopes. You hit those envelopes and you stop. The bottom line is the information about the amount of fuel on board came from a press conference or from a conversation and is quoted by a journalist who was talking to Fred Noonan. Yeah. And then so that's where that came from. That's not just generic hearsay. That's a documented conversation. Yes. And uh, the other interesting thing about this only just now occurring to me, but the fact that they didn't have a raft that also means they didn't have a way to get off a plane that was ditched in the water when they're 100 yards offshore in a storm. Yeah, they have to swim for it. Right. And if they're injured, that could be an impossibility. Wow. So let me ask one last question. Has there been additional side scan, or do you have any knowledge of additional side scan sonar operating in the area for other aircraft that might be down there? Or is there any knowledge of other aircraft in the area that might be down, that might muddy the waters in terms of, let's say that we take your whole theory and we say, no, this all makes sense. She probably made it back to the region of Buka. Could there be another plane nearby that even if you found this one and it wasn't hers, that wouldn't necessarily mean that her plane wasn't in uh, other waters somewhere off the coast of Buka necessarily, right? And I think that's an important thing to think about because the only thing that that I'm willing to go more out on a limb with is the fact that she didn't have enough fuel to get to Howland but the location of it, this being her plane coming back from the airport at Buka, it might not be her plane. Her plane could be someplace else. There's a rumor of a plane that was down at what they call Christmas Island, but it's a number of miles away. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, it's not directly on that flight line, but uh, I don't know what that is. Right. See, I mean, guess because there's a lot of things that are interesting about the headwinds and the amount of fuel she had. If she couldn't make it to Howland, then she couldn't have made it to several of the other possible locations that are mentioned in the other hypotheses that are out there either. So I don't want to go and make it a, a firm effort to support every other group. That's uh, yeah, out and there I'm, I'm not trying to start a they've war. Got just as good, they've <laughs> got just as good a chance of finding it as I do. Sure. And I'll be the first to congratulate and shake their hands when they do. 
We just want it solved. We want her, her plane found. I don't care who finds it. Yes. And right there, right there is why we have such an affinity for, for Bill is because of that statement right there. Because yeah. that statement lines up perfectly with what, what we're about. You know, we're, course, we're, we're talking about how she lived as opposed to how she died. That, that's a big deal. But when it comes to the hypotheses and everybody that's like the camps, you had said, Scott, when we first started talking about this, um, I think on one of your episodes of the show, he is supportive of the search, period. Not just, you know, okay, it's only my search. It's only my plane. There's no other options for anything else. He's very supportive of everybody who is doing the work that they're doing, just as in the same nature that we are. We think that everybody's doing phenomenal work, regardless of what hypothesis they're researching and they're working on. Bill is of the same mind. And I think that's one of the things that sort of... um frankly, is kind of a page turner in the Earhart investigation, because you talked about being a catalyst for change on the episode with me when I was on your show. And he is one of the folks that is sort of helping us become that catalyst for change is because he he is such a supporter of everybody else. And like he just said in his own words, if Tiger finds the plane tomorrow unequivocally, or if Nautico's pulls the plane out of the ocean tomorrow unequivocally, he's going to be just as happy as as if if it ends up being in Buka. He's hey, not, we, we planted our um, flag on Japanese capture, so this doesn't work <laughs> well, for that yeah. at all. <laughs> well, well, but I'm, know, still, well, well, I'm still excited, It, it could be two different stories. This is yeah, the here comes, here be, comes uh, the forest going to branch it out right now. Well, no, it, it's uh, that's the thing. And keeping it open and wondering if this is an... Obviously, there's a plane there, which is... There is an airplane there. That's solid. That's exciting. It's the same length. We don't and know. Has, yeah. And what did you say? You said, Bill, you said it had 10 points of identification that matched that would match an Electra 10E, right? That appear to be. That appear to. From what I'm hearing. Right, what you're hearing because you haven't been there. i got to see it with my own eyes. Sure. To Forrest's point, the work that Les Kinney and Dick Spink and all the folks have been working on the Japanese capture hypothesis is, you know, again, the eyewitness list that they have, the Jaluit dock photo, the parts of the plane they found on Millie Atoll. I mean, all of that stuff is so incredibly compelling. And it's, it's one of those things that, that's why we support everybody. When people say, you know, who are you working with? We say, well, everybody, because I, we think that everybody's work warrants that. And the Japanese capture being the oldest hypothesis out there certainly, you know, has a ton of merit to it. You know, depending on on what you believe is, you know, to ha- happen to Miss Earhart, Mr. Noonan, is it that they got captured by the Japanese? Is it, you know, that they crashed off Buka? Is it, you know, were they on Gardner Island, Nicomoro? Is it a combination of a few things that, yeah, you know, that maybe happened? Yeah. Like Bill said, you don't know what you don't know. And that's right. really true in right. this case. Yeah, it's already a fascinating mystery, but it could be even more complicated. What else I've found and the reason I've got so much respect for the other groups is until you try doing this stuff, yeah. you don't realize how much passion and energy goes into it. So every other group has put that same degree of passion and energy into it. How can I not respect that? Of course. Same thing you all are doing, the amount of passion and energy you all are, are putting into it. Well, we're so putting into it. talking about it. You guys <laughs> are out there doing it. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll tell you this but, right now, though, just for what it's worth, because I, I have Google Earth open, which is my favorite program of all time. Christmas Island is 3,879 miles from uh, Ley. It's way past, yeah. if it's the same yeah. one. I know a lot of these islands have But it's names. a different one, yeah. apparently. And, oh, that's, okay. and that's what, yeah, it's a different one. And it's, they call it that locally. <laughs> oh, okay. So it must oh. be something closer then, I see. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, we checked that out the other day, and it was a different. But they've got their own names for stuff, of course. And apparently, it's their Christmas Island. 
number of miles away, but it doesn't sound as if that plane, because we, we dealt with another chap out of Rabau, and I'm not going to name right now, that did some searching, and that was one of his questions, was at the plane at? And I said no. Right, right. So the other thing that's going to be important is whoever happens to locate it, and I do think it's going to be located by one of the groups. It'll happen. If it is, then it's going to be important uh, as to figuring out how best to deal with it, because I'd sure like to see it as intact as possible, Mm -hmm. and I'd like to see it uh, done according to what the family wants done. And I'd like to have a legacy. You know, David's worked for years over there. They've protected the site. He wants a first aid station on the island, you know, for people to get injured, and he'd like a school on the island. I can't think of a better legacy to leave than something positive out of something that's happened that's tragic. Yeah. And so one of the things that I said is uh, if we get a sponsor, we'll certainly try to do a documentary on it, pay the sponsor back first, and then see if we can't fund those things for David on his island to make something good happen out of a tragedy. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Well, we cannot thank you enough for Mm. coming on our show. It's really exciting. No matter what turns up there, it's been great to have you on here and talk to you about uh, what you're doing. And we really want to be the second people you call after Chris (laughs) (laughs) when when you figure out what's going on there. Well, you all have been delightful and patient with me. There are a lot of things I'm going to learn later are different from what I have been thinking, but that's part of life. We learn as we go. And I'm looking forward to uh, seeing what happens uh, in the near future uh, with all the groups and congratulate any one of them that finds it and mean it because we're solving a mystery and it's going to take everyone to be able to figure that out. So thanks so much for inviting me on your show tonight and uh, I will hope to see you in a few months at another locale. Yes, absolutely. We're looking forward to that very much. Wow. Well, if that all happens to be true, this could crack the case. An 80-year-old mystery. It could. You know, but it might not. It might be someone else's plane. And something that Bill said that I thought was really important and tells you a lot about his character is, you know, it's important to figure out who it is, especially if there's remains. Yeah. Because that story is not any less important than Amelia Earhart's story. Right. And so it's important to get to the bottom of it. And that tells you where his heart is, which I think is really significant. Well, it's still uh, a couple of human lives that were lost in this crash. Yeah, and and they're unknown Yeah, and it's it's still a mystery. It's not, you know, as big of a worldwide mystery, but something happened there that was not documented or registered other than by this young boy when it happened. Yeah. And as Bill said himself, you really have to turn over every stone if you want to rule it out. And not to have done that on a large part of her trip, it's not looking at the entire picture. But here is a very strong argument when you consider you take into account that she turned around. She decided to abort the trip, take it safe. That way she could start out again and not have to take a chance and ruin everything and end it there. Yes, and I, before we get into kind of our final observations on this, there's a couple of things I did want to add. One was, Forrest and I both were trying not to laugh about this, but the, one of the guys that, <laughs> that that Bill talks about being involved early on was uh, Matt Foley. Yeah, it is, it is not Chris Farley's character, <laughs> yeah. the, the motivational speaker on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, if you're yeah. old enough to remember <laughs> Matt Foley, he lived in a van down by the river. <laughs> that uh, was the key. One yes. of the funniest sketches of all time. That was, uh, yes, one of the enduring lines from that. Yeah. Uh, but it's This not is him. a different yeah. Matt Foley 
Foley, who exactly. was the last surviving Coast Watcher from Australia. And I thought this was really interesting. The only reason I even know what the Coast Watchers were or became aware of them was because of uh, our series on the Somerton Man. That is right. Where Absolutely. we talked about, yeah. you know, military action. Because what these guys had to do was basically stand and report what they were seeing right. to military services in Australia during the war. Yes. To warn people. That's very fascinating that he got to meet the last yeah, guy yeah. alive that was doing that. He's very cautious about all this, which I also appreciate. Yes. He's very cautious about coming out with any declarative statements or defining it as uh, this has been solved. <laughs> There's no mystery solved here. He's just presenting this as something that must be checked into, and I agree. Here's the other thing. There's another thing I want to say about Bill before we get into this last little bit of uh, of information that we wanted to impart and go ahead and wrap up this show. Having talked to Bill and gotten to know him now and exchanged information, I wanted to say that he's a very analog guy. He's not super into computers. And what I love about that is that this is an analog search. This takes good old-fashioned kind of gumshoe detective work, and he's a master at it. He is not yeah. – he's done a lot of analysis, but the analysis that he has done, I envision him, you know, yeah. sitting at a desk with a slide ruler and doing fuel calculations and a compass and maps and all that stuff. I don't know if that's how it unfolded, but right. that's what it feels like. And I tend to trust that kind of information more than I do information that relies heavily on modern technology. Well, good case in point. It's funny because – this is an analog crash. Yeah. And if you look at MH370, that's a modern day disappearance of a uh, passenger jet. And we have all this tracking stuff on it. We have all these electronics. We got the black box, all that. None of that mattered. None of it. Yeah. So and there are satellites yeah. and, you know, radio telemetry, everything you can imagine, it's still missing. Yeah. So here's something, though. And I think once you strip all that away, you're thinking it should be easier. But it's not, because there are some missing pieces here of communication. Like a lot of these cases where uh, I would say, I don't know, most of the time, that's a huge factor in it. MH370, missing chunks of communication. Flight 19. Yeah. Garbled or misunderstood communications between the ground and the flight. And that's what we have here, because there was a lot of uh, strained and uh, missing communication between Earhart's plane and those on the ground or on the water trying to guide them in. So, and if we'd known some of that, if we had just one more sentence from her, maybe this wouldn't be a big mystery. So it, and, it know, matters. And I mean, a lot of stuff about his talk is super interesting to me in his analysis. But the other thing that's really fascinating too is the idea of the communication that was sent from her being misunderstood yeah. because maybe she made transmissions that weren't heard, but she didn't know whether they were heard or not. Right. Like we're turning around. Yeah. So that the, all the transmissions made after that, she would think would make sense to anyone listening, although that crucial part of the information would be missing. So that one missed transmission could be the difference between folks looking for her out in the area of Howland Island right. or looking for her on a return path. This is what I love about it, and I did say this, I think, to Bill uh, during the interview. Correct me if I've got this wrong. If she were heading towards Howland and the Atasca, the ship, and said that what she did, and that was received, that's meant one way. If she's actually turned around and coming back, what she said means something completely different. It's a whole different interpretation. That's it's like, correct. It's, it's like leaving out the punctuation of a sentence. You've now just changed the meaning of it with a few things that are missing depending on on the structure. So that's one thing I found really interesting about this is that, yeah, just depending on what direction she's heading, 
it changes everything. Well, yeah, it's like that book on uh, grammar that came out a few years ago that had a panda on the front eating bamboo. Yeah. And it was called Eats, Shoots, and Leaves. You're right. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's like if you don't have the comma in there, it changes everything. Yes. Eats, yeah. shoots, right. and leaves. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> right. So anyway, yeah, I think that's a really good point and one of the valid points that he made. One of the things that I did want to touch on was I remember when when I asked Bill about the number of electors or missing electors, and this is something I, you know, I think we dug up a while ago, but I actually can't remember for sure. And I wanted to know more about. So I dug down on this just today as we're wrapping out doing this, you know, bookend for the interview. Did a little cursory research. It's been a while since I've mm. done that. We kind of got away from cursory. <laughs> <laughs> well, even that turned into an afternoon. Yeah, this, mostly. it, it yeah. did. It did. I didn't expect to go this deep on this, but I, I did find some interesting stuff about electors because I wanted to know what the probability was that this could be, because it appears to be the right length and have these 10 characteristics that match an Electra 10, I wanted to find out what exactly the stats were on Electra 10s and if there was any way to determine whether it could be a different Electra 10. If it turns out to be one, which, by the way, has not been confirmed, Bill has not said it's an Electra 10, that has not been confirmed. It just right. seems like it might be based on those 10 characteristics that yes. they have right now. Yeah. So 149 Model 10s of all variants, that's A, B, C, E, and then some other special ones, which we're going to talk about in a second, were built according to the Museum of Flight website. That's 149. Now, Wikipedia lists 142. So I don't know. There's some disparity there. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more inclined to go with the Museum of Flight on that. But the, the disparity of seven planes there. Now... Not to say that Lockheed didn't secretly build some planes, which they may have, but... They do to this day. Yeah, they do. (laughs) So, But I think at this point, most of those planes would still have been documented by now. Now, according to Wikipedia, there were 101 Electra 10As. Now, all these planes, all the Electra 10s, as far as I can tell, I'm not positive of this, were 38 feet, 7 inches long. I know the A was that long, and I know that the 10E was that long, which is what Amelia's plane was. And they had a 55-foot wingspan. I believe the major difference between the different designations on the 10s was whatever engines they had on them. Yeah. uh, Varying uh, power and and that sort of thing. Right. So there were 101 Electra 10As. There were 18 Electra 10Bs. And interestingly, one of these was a U.S. Coast Guard plane that was designed for the Secretary of State. There were eight Electra 10Cs, which Pan Am took all of those apparently. And then the 10E, which Amelia flew, there were only 15 of those. And five of those went to uh, U.S. Army Air Forces. So we're really talking about, in terms of 10Es, we're talking about 10 potential planes. Then there were two other planes. There was this one-off plane called the XC-35, which had turbocharged Pratt & Whitney engines, which I believe was just a a test mule, basically. And then there was another one called the KXL-1. That was a Model 10 made for Japan, apparently. So that's what we got, 101As. 18 Bs, 8 Cs, 15 Es, which was hers, and then two special planes. That's Wikipedia's list, which has 142. There may be seven other planes. Mm -hmm. Now, TIGAR, which is Rick Gillespie's group, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, has a webpage. They have so much information. All of it's uh, very transparent, so it's a good place to get information like this. But they have a page known as the Electra Survivors Project, and it currently details about 16 surviving Electras as of right now. 14 of those are the 10 A's. One is a 10 B and there's only one 10 E, one plane like Amelia's, which is the famed Muriel, named for Amelia's sister. And that plane was restored by pilot and Earhart historian Grace McGuire, who purchased it from a museum in Florida in 1982. And then she restored it at great cost before selling it 
to the Atchison Amelia Earhart Foundation. That's in Atchison, Kansas. And this is the last remaining Electra 10E. And it's there in Kansas, which we actually, I cannot wait, get to see in person in July when we go to the Amelia Earhart Festival when we're, uh, we're going to be there. I'm going to do the pose where I have my hands aren't stretched between the propellers. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but don't touch it. No, no, no of course not. <laughs> but uh, we're going to be there courtesy of the Chasing Earhart Project. So a big thanks to them. We're very excited about that. Yeah. I did want to talk about those electors, though, because my whole point was to try and figure out, again, what the statistical likelihood of this plane, if it's identified as an Electra, of being another plane. There are lots of other planes that were designed with twin engines and twin tails, by yes. the way. So there's there's other potential there. Whether 142 or 149 were built, we did find a website called the Bureau of Aircraft Accident Archives. And this is a pretty amazing website. I wanted to read a little bit about this website before we go into this information. The Bureau of Aircraft Accidents Archives, B3A, was established in Geneva in 1990 for the purpose to deal with all information related to aviation accidentology. Ronan Hubert, founder of B3A, is a historian in aircraft accidents. His relationship with several investigation boards worldwide, experience on site, as well as more than 25 years of presence in aviation business, gave him the opportunity to publish four books. His skills, expertise, and impartiality are his strengths, and he is today recognized as a knowledgeable accidentologist. That's a new word that I learned mm. today. Yeah, you didn't make that up? Nope, that's no. right there on his website. He All might right, have then. made it up, but I don't think so. <laughs> right. The primary goal of the B3A is to collect, manage, and archive all information relating to aviation accidents worldwide since 1918 until today. Therefore, its records are currently composed of thousands of documents, reports, photos, etc., representing to date more than 25,500 events. I was thrilled to find this site because it has a whole page just about Electra Model 10s that have crashed or had accidents. So the Bureau of Aircraft Accident Archives lists 52 Lockheed 10 accidents. That's across all variants of the Lockheed. Now, accidents, it's important to remember that accidents don't always mean that the plane didn't fly again, but in most cases, it does seem like that's the case. And we have links to this website and to the list of Lockheed 10 accidents in our show notes for this episode. But here's the thing that I wanted to find out. I wanted to find out how many Lockheed 10s were ever anywhere near where Bill is looking. So with these 52 accidents, presuming that they've got all the accidents registered, which it seems like if anybody does, they do, but I'm sure there could be some other accident that's not recorded or not reported for some reason or another. But with these 52 13 of them happened in the United States, obviously nowhere near Buka, which is, by the way, off the eastern coast of Papua New Guinea and northeast of Australia and about, I think, 2,300 miles almost due north of New Zealand. So 13 of those accidents happened in the United States, and all but seven of the remaining ones, that's 32, happened in other countries, Greece, Poland, Mexico, England, Denmark, Croatia, Yugoslavia, Venezuela, Egypt, Brazil, India, Honduras, Antarctica, and Chile. All of those countries, obviously, nowhere near Buka, just like the United States. There were seven remaining crashes to talk about, and these seven are important because they happened in Australia and New Zealand, which means that these planes are all potential candidates to be what Bill has possibly found off the coast of Buka. So let's take a look at these planes. I wanted to know if any of these planes fit the profile for being the plane that we're talking about tonight. The first one was out of Australia. This aircraft, christened Moresby, left Darwin Airport bound for Adelaide with 10 soldiers and two crew on behalf of the Royal Australian Air Force. 
Five minutes after takeoff, the right engine fired and the crew decided to return to Darwin. On final approach, the captain was forced to attempt an emergency landing when in low visibility, the aircraft hit a tree and crashed in flames in a prairie. All 12 occupants escaped uninjured. However, the aircraft was completely destroyed by a fire. So we know that that's not the plane. That was a land crash. That was the only one of the Electra 10s out of Australia that crashed. Then there was one out of New Zealand, which also crashed on land, no fatalities, plane completely lost. That was with New Zealand Union Airways. Then there was another one with New Zealand Union Airways, also crashed with five fatalities, and again, the loss of the plane. This was another crash on land. And then the third crash I want to talk about was New Zealand National Airways. This was one of the worst ones. This crashed into a mountain in New Zealand. There were 13 fatalities, and again, the plane was lost. But that was a mountain. None of these were in the water. So there's no possibility that any of these could be the plane that's currently sitting in the water off Buka. However, there are two planes that went down in the water. One of them was New Zealand National Airways again. Listen to the description of this accident. The twin-engined aircraft christened Kahu left Auckland Airport at 1,435 hours local time bound for Gisborne with an intermediate stop in Toranga. On final approach, the crew encountered poor weather conditions with thunderstorm activity and strong winds. The aircraft lost height and crashed in the Waipu Bay, less than 200 yards from the runway threshold. All 12 occupants were rescued, but the aircraft was damaged beyond repair. So that one went down in the water, but they know exactly where it is. Now, I don't know if it was ever recovered, but even if it wasn't, they know exactly where this is. And again, it's nowhere near Buka, which is, as I said, over 2,000 miles north of this particular area. Right. There is one remaining plane that went down in the water. Now, every plane we've talked about so far is actually a 10A. So there are only two 10Es on this list of all these planes. And the first one that I'm going to tell you about very briefly was a Trans-Island Airways plane, again, out of New Zealand. On touchdown at Christchurch Airport, the right main gear collapsed. The twin-engine airplane went out of control, veered off the runway, and came to rest in a grassy area. All three occupants were uninjured, and the aircraft was not repaired. Built in 1937, the airplane christened Spirit of Tasman Bay, was the last Lockheed 10 Electra in service in New Zealand. So that's important. And this one actually went down in 1959, February 18th of 1959. So failure of the right main gear. That, by the way, was a ground loop, just like what happened to Amelia when she first set off to go around the world from Hawaii and she had a ground loop in the plane. These folks had a ground loop as well. And the plane was, I read on another website, this particular one was written off. So that plane did not go back into service. Right. Again, not a candidate for this plane that's in the water, if that plane in the water is a 10E. So there's only one 10E left on this list that might be the plane that Bill has found. And that one lists the following circumstances on its disappearance. See if this sounds familiar. The crew was engaged in a world tour, and the aircraft had been prepared with special equipment. It was able to fly 20 hours without a fuel stop. The crew left Leh in New Guinea, bound for Howland Island in the Pacific Ocean. The trip was estimated to 20 hours flight, and it seems the aircraft was lost at sea some 30 minutes prior to its predicted arrival at Howland Island. Search and rescue operations never found any trace of the aircraft nor the crew. Both occupants, famous aviation pioneers and aviators, were lost forever. Crew, Amelia Earhart, pilot, Frederick Noonan, radio navigator. Causes, fuel exhaustion was suspected, but the exact cause of the accident has never been elucidated. 
So in conclusion, 52 Electra 10s are on the Bureau of Accident Archives list as having crashed. Only seven of those flew anywhere near the Asia-Pacific region. Six of them are accounted for. If the plane that young Tiolo first dived on in 1996 proves to be an Electra Model 10, there is only one missing in the world due to an accident right now, and that one belonged to Amelia Earhart. That's going to wrap up tonight's show. A very special thanks to both Bill Snavely and, of course, Chris Williamson from the Chasing Earhart Project. If you're interested in sponsoring Bill's expedition to Buka, please email us at astonishingcontact at gmail.com and write BUKA, B-U-K-A, sponsorship in all caps in the subject line, and we'll get your information to him. We'll be back next week with a new episode about our experiences on our first ghost hunt in Kent, Ohio. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, Todd Sturgill is spelled B-E-N-R-I-C-H-M-O-N-D. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell. And our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. I want you to meet Daniel Bronstadt. Hello! Over here! He's a little strange. Some nights I wake up and I think it would be amazing to go on a flamingo hunt. He lives in a rundown mansion. Originally, this was meant to be a bathroom, but I've converted it into my bedroom. I just feel more comfortable sleeping in small spaces, and so I actually sleep in this tub. And he also may have killed his twin brother, Chuck. 911, what's your emergency? It's my brother. I, uh... I think he's dead. Okay, please calm down, sir. What happened? This Sounds Serious is a new fictional true crime podcast from CastBox. If you like some humor with your true crime, then this is the show for you. It's packed with cults, plot twists, a weatherman, a boy band, and, of course, an unsolved murder. Yeah, he's dead. He's face down in his bed, and I'm I'm poking him pretty hard here, and uh, it would be very unlike him to not respond to this kind of poking. Download This Sounds Serious wherever you get your podcasts.